Peter continues his comforting tone by talking about false prophets and the judgment of the Lord. Welcome to Daily Gospel, equipping you to know God through His Word and His Son, Jesus Christ. My name is Keith, and this is Brandon, and we are pastors here in Santa Cruz, California at Gospel Community Church. Welcome, like, subscribe, comment. If you're in the area, you better be coming to our church or one of the few gospel-centered, Bible-believing churches in the Santa Cruz area. Come on down. So there were not enough comments on last week's video, apparently, to get Keith to either shave his mustache or change his shirt. So that's just, this is even wearing that for a while now. It's kind of concerning, but yeah, well, oh man, I don't do my own laundry, you know, so it's kind of hard. So that's true. You're at the mercy of your wife. Yes, she's she's on boycott right now, or she's on uh, strike. I mean, well, yeah, because of the mustache. Okay, there yeah. you go. There you so, go. Makes sense. Yeah, what are you gonna do? Perpetual cycle. Yep. Well, Second Peter. We're, so we're in the um, the section of the New Testament known as the Catholic epistles. So they've gone from Paul's epistles. Now we're in these ones that are more generally written to broader audiences. Just to be clear. Not all of them. We are Protestant. You're Protestant. Yes. Of course. Yeah. You're not you're not going to the Pope in your spare time, are you? Well, only to tell him he's a false prophet. Pope Antichrist or no? Um I bet Caleb would say yes. Caleb would definitely say yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Just kidding. Um, we'll talk about that uh, in a couple oh, of weeks. Oh yeah. We're gonna yeah. solve all of our future problems. Mm-hmm. Revelation. I know some of you guys are going to skip all these videos to go straight to Revelation because yeah. you're a bunch of kooks. Yep. And that's okay. I don't blame you. All right. We're in the book of Second Peter. So Peter was written by Peter. This is probably one of the most doubted books in terms of its authorship in the New Testament. Hebrews? No, Hebrews is just no one knows. But this <laughs> okay. is one that, that a lot of critical <laughs> oh, scholars, a lot of more liberal people will like say, it. oh, someone took on Peter's name to, to trick us, you yeah. know. And maybe it was even like, yeah, anyway, not necessarily that he was lying, but it was like, oh, it was written in this one form that's very obscure. But one, there's a few reasons people doubt this. So there's a lot of parallels between Second Peter and Jude. So mm-hmm. we'll see a lot of the same language. Jude has a similar focus on false prophets, but a lot of the language, in, from, uh, especially from chapter 2 of First Second Peter, is very prominent in, um, in Jude. So... That's not necessarily weird, though, that there is some of that in Scripture, mm-hmm. where books borrow. I mean, look at like the Old Testament. There's certain books that have huge sections, yeah. right? Kings and Chronicles, stuff like that. So the most logical conclusion would be that Jude borrowed from Peter, since Peter's kind of the man, yeah, and Jude is not as much the man, although he is the brother of Jesus. But anyway, we'll get there. Um, again, people think that maybe Peter's too highfalutin for a fisherman. Mm-hmm. Um but again, he probably wasn't just a poor hick. He seems to indicate the day of the Lord is delayed is for longer. What's that? Hick. Oh, I'm sorry. Redneck. Yes. That's, that's thank, you, thank, you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Trailer. Yes. Tra- no. <laughs> um, so he seems to indicate, Peter does, we're going back to that, that the day of the Lord, this day of judgment, is delayed longer than people thought. Hmm. And so many think that it was written later because of that. Hmm. But he may just preempt that idea. He's saying, look, this is going to happen. People will come and they'll say, hey, it's been a long time. Why hasn't the day of the Lord come? Hmm. Right. So uh, there's not necessarily a reason to think he was writing this 100 years after Jesus or something like that. Hmm. And then one of the big questions people have is that it's not as widely used in the, in the early church as people would think. Okay. So this is an interesting question, but there's a few reasons, obviously, why that, that could be the case. One is... Peter was actually, I know this is crazy, 
he was not the first pope. Mm. So as important as he was among the apostles, as much of a rock in the church as he was, he wasn't the the sole leader and the, the guy above everyone else in the early church. We see this in Acts 15 where James is leading the Jerusalem council and Peter is mm-hmm. kind of more on the sideline. Right. Right. So that's a strange thing. But so Peter, as important as he was, we don't want to diminish that, but he's not the Pope. Mm-hmm. So it's not like he is the one who stands in the place of Christ. So, so, so we're definitely Protestant. If you come in without that assumption, right, <laughs> then actually you may, it's not that surprising because you yeah. realize God's going to use different apostles in different ways. Um, the second reason why it's not used as widely is because the topics here are kind of a little bit more obscure. Mm. So he's, his focus is not what Romans is about, right. which is let's, let's you know explicate justification by faith. Let's get to the heart of the gospel. These are central ideas in the in the early church. They had to debate with Peter. Seems to be focusing a lot on false teachers. Mm-hmm. So as important as that is, that's not like the bread and butter for everybody, mm-hmm. right? Some guys on YouTube, it's their only thing, right? It's not about false teachers, but. But yeah, the, that so I think that's part of the reason why it wasn't as widely used because of the content, Makes the topics sense. discussed. Makes sense. Same with Jude. Awesome. Um, so when do we think it was written? Well, in in Second Peter one fourteen, um, <laughs> he says, right? I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. So he seems to know he's about to die. Mm-hmm. So this is sort of a deathbed letter. Kind of like what we saw with Second Timothy, yeah. where Paul seems conscious of this, I'm about to die, so he's writing these last words. Mm-hmm. So because of that, you know, mid-60s yeah, that is, is when you know, people believe Peter died is about 64, 65 AD. So this is written before that. And it's a very general letter. Again, it's written to a broad audience. He says in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah. So. Christian. That's all of us. Yeah. 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 Awesome. What are the main themes? Well, so was, this was written because there was clearly a problem with false teachers, and there is also some doubt being spread about the day of the Lord. Mm. So there seems to be a lot of questions coming up. So Peter wants to warn and equip his readers against these false teachers. And I think that when you get near the end of your life, you have a burden to convey a message. And so we see that urgency here. Mm-hmm. It's a very urgent letter. And so the theme, I, I would put it simply, is chapter 3, verse 18, right? Grow in grace and knowledge. So Second Peter 3, 18 says, Grow in the grace and knowledge yeah. of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the end of the book. He also starts in chapter 1, verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our, our Jesus Christ, our Lord. So knowledge and grace are, are present beginning and end. They're kind of sort of end caps to the whole book. Yeah, that makes so sense. So that's the theme, growing in grace and in knowledge. Awesome. And how would you structure this letter? So chapter 1, 1 through 15 is confirm your calling. So he's going to encourage us as to why our calling, why we can make that sure. The rest of chapter 1, verses 16 to 21, is trust in Scripture. Chapter 2, guard against false teachers. And then chapter three, guard against false teaching, specifically around the day of the Lord. Awesome. So pretty simple. These shorter books are kind of a little more easy to kind of get your head around the structure. So let's get into chapter one. So confirm, confirm your calling is the first section here. So he starts off by saying, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. A servant and apostle. So I love this. He's, he's, introducing himself as a slave and as an apostle. So 
just like Paul often does, he's lowering himself with that word slave at the beginning. Mm -hmm. He's a slave of Jesus. And he says to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Mm. That's an amazing statement. Again, especially when people will often in different you know, sects of Christianity put certain people on a higher pedestal. Uh, yeah. Peter is saying your uh, faith. The Roman Catholic Church. The, yeah, that's what, that's what I was looking for. Yeah. Um, and the Mormons too, you know. What's well, funny because it's people like are gods. They put Peter on the pedestal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Peter, Peter's a slave. Peter's saying your faith is of an equal standing with ours. How is that possible? How can we be in some, in any sense, on the same level as Peter? Well, he says by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you have a faith of equal standing with the Apostle Peter. I don't care if you what your past is, what you've done. Because you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Right. There's nothing greater than that. Right. So you have everything that you could possibly want or need. Preach. And then he points to the, the purpose of the book, as I mentioned in verse 2, right? Knowledge and grace. So he's going to help us increase our knowledge and help us to grow in grace. And verse 3, he kind of sort of gets into his first argument here. And this is an amazing statement in verse 13. There's a few things here that are pretty incredible in this early section. He says this, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So God's given us everything we need for life and godliness is the idea. Life, I would take that as eternal life. So there's everything that we need for eternal life and everything that we need for godliness. Godliness is the practical. How do we live to be like God? How do we follow after God? He's given us all of those things, verse 3, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So I would take this as saying in scripture, right, in what God has given to us, delivered to us, we have everything we need for salvation and sanctification, mm-hmm. to know God, to have life, and to live for him. Yeah, That's, ama- that's an amazing statement, and it, and it has huge implications for how we do ministry. Yeah, Because so often what we'll think is, yeah, the Bible gives us a lot of things. It shows us how to meet Jesus maybe, but in order for somebody to grow, they need psychology or they need, you know, this kind of worldly wisdom or they need, right, that we kind of tend to look at Scripture as very limited. Yeah, or there's kind of cultural outreach where we need to be like the culture in order to win the affections and show wisdom to the world and yeah. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So, yeah, in terms of how we run a, run a church, function as a church, how we live our individual Christian lives, Whatever it is, we, we don't always believe that the power is in the Word. Right, yeah. And Peter's going to show st- in, this, in this chapter just how strongly he disagrees with that. Mm-hmm. That Scripture actually is sufficient. So he says, uh, chapter 1, verse 4 is an amazing statement as well. He says this, says, By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. That... Again, a stunning statement here. God has given us grace so that we could become partakers of the divine nature. So just a statement like that is so massive, it could easily be taken in a heretical way. Mm-hmm. So you have to immediately start thinking, okay, what does this mean? There are plenty of ways that God says to us in Scripture, we cannot be like him. Yeah. Okay, so if you take this literally, we would say, oh, maybe we become God. Maybe God makes us into God. Well, that can't be what he's saying. And one of the good ways to distinguish this, to sort this out, is between this idea in theology of communicable versus incommunicable attributes of God. 
That's those are big words, I guess. But attributes of God are things that define God. Some of those are communicable, meaning God tells us to imitate him, to be like him. So holiness or wisdom or a lot of these things, God calls us to grow in them and to imitate his, his qualities, his attributes. But then there are others that are incommunicable, meaning they can't be given to us. They can't be transferred. That God stands alone as a one of a kind and only he can have them. Right. So omnipotence, right, having all power or omniscience, knowing all things. These are things that are not communicable. They can't be transferred to us. Right. So as much as we are going to grow in God and and be godly in all the right ways, there are certain things, certain limits that God has placed on us to what we can and can't be. Yeah. Only he can be God. So when he's saying partakers of the divine nature, he's talking about this entrance into the, the depth of relationship with God, true communication, true communion, I should say, with God, which is an incredible thing. And also that we are going to be made like God in the way that he intended us to be in Genesis 1, not the way that, that Satan intended us to be in Genesis chapter 3. Yeah. So we have to, be, have to distinguish those two things. But that's an amazing statement, yeah. that we're going to be partakers of the divine nature. And so he, he gives a list of qualities here, and this is helpful for us. If you want to see some of, okay, what does it mean to be godly? What does it mean to be um, living for God? Verses 5 and 6 and 7 are great. And he says at the end of this list, he says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is how we make our calling and election sure is by growing in grace, by growing in knowledge. And through that growth, that continual growth, we make sure that we're not ineffective or unfruitful. Yeah. So he goes on in verse 10, right? It says, therefore, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Hmm. So we look to our lives. We say, am I growing in grace? Am I being sanctified by God? That's a reminder, a picture that God is working in my life, mm -hmm. that I'm truly saved. So the first section there, we see this importance of confirming your calling. And then in the end of chapter one, we see the importance of trusting in scripture. So verses 16 to 18 of chapter one, he begins to speak of the, the transfiguration, right? So he's saying, we didn't just follow made up things right. when we made known to you, Jesus. We actually heard the voice from heaven on the mountain. And, and we, we experienced this, this whole vision of who God really, or who Christ really is. Mm -hmm. And you remember the story of how Moses and Elijah were there with him on the mountain. And then he goes on, though, right, saying how he heard God speak. He saw a revelation of God. And he goes on to say, for, uh, he says in verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, hmm. to which you will do well to pay attention to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So what he's saying here is, we have something more certain, more sure than what we experienced at, in that time. Hmm. When we heard God speak, when we saw Jesus' glory, we have something more sure, which is Scripture. Yeah. Scripture. We have, the, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. So we have something stronger than that, that is more dependable than what we've experienced or what we've seen. And so that's why we, we listen to Scripture, we trust in it above our own experiences, above our, above our own feelings. Hmm. Um, we trust and lean on this, and this has never let anyone down yeah. if they're truly following it. And then he goes on to talk about how, you know, Scripture is not from your own interpretation, 
but men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So men speak, and then God works in the speech of man to superintend that speech, that writing, to deliver his word to us. Right. So this is a good passage about the inspiration of Scripture, what that means, that God is the one who is divinely, right, providentially directing the, the words of humanity to, to deliver his word. Mm. Yeah. So chapter 2, we get into the false, false prophets, right? So chapter 2 is guard against false teachers. So in chapter 2, verse 1, he says something interesting, which I think causes a lot of confusion here, so it would be good to kind of dig into it. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So interesting statement here if he says that they're denying the master who bought them. So how do you explain that? It, are these people saved? Right. It's, it kind of almost sounds like that's what he's saying, right? So how do you explain this phrase, who bought them? Did The master obviously refers to God. Right. In our, in our version, it's capitalized. That's a great read, right? So they're denying this master, but the master is the one who bought them. So I think, I think there's you know, some people who will say that God purchased salvation for everyone. So when Christ died on the cross, he was punished for the sins of every single person. Okay, now you run into some huge problems here. Yeah, right? people still go to hell. So. People still go to hell. So if Christ yeah. was punished for your sins and then you were punished for your sins, how does that work? <clears throat> it, it, that can't be the case, right? <clears throat> or, or maybe some people kind of think of it as like Christ died and there's just kind of this like general fund up there mm-hmm. of his blood and it's applied to you when you repent. But what it's, what it's the reality seems to be, according to what Scripture says, that Christ was punished for our sins back then. Right? Mm-hmm. He says it is finished. Right. He takes that upon himself. That's what everything indicates in Scripture. So did he just pay a potential price for everybody, or did he accomplish salvation for his people? Well, this is one of those key verses that seems to indicate Christ paying his blood for false prophets. Right. So I think it requires some thought. So one possibility is that he is using their own words. So he's kind of speaking in a a way that undermines what they're saying. Hmm. So he says they're denying the master who bought them. It's sort of like he's saying this as their own quotation, right? Hmm. And he's kind of almost sarcastic here, right? So they're saying, oh yeah, Jesus bought us, we're saved. And he's saying, yeah, you're denying it by the way you live. Yeah, That's one possibility that I think could work, that he's saying, yeah, you're denying what you claim to be true. Right. So it's obviously not true that, they, that, that Christ bought you. Um, that's one possibility. Another possibility, though, is that the word bought is used in a different sense here than it often is used. So typically this word, when it refers to salvation, because it's just a normal word for buying things, right? Purchasing something. When it refers to salvation, it usually is used with something. So it'll say that you were bought with his blood or you were bought for a price mm-hmm. or with a price. So like Revelation 5, 9 says, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed, that's the same word bought, mm-hmm. people for God from every tribe and, pe- and language of people and nations. So um, so that there it's speaking of blood bought. Or 1 Corinthians 6.20 says you were bought with a price. So purchasing something 
could mean a lot of different things. It doesn't have to only mean salvation. So this could be sort of a general metaphorical sense of God owns you. He's your master, and yet you're denying him. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a, a slave-master metaphor. You belong to God, and yet you're denying him through your works. So either one, I think, is possibility. But there, so I think that that doesn't at all undermine the idea that when Christ died on the cross, he died for the sins of his people. He actually accomplished something on the cross, the cross not just a potential future salvation, but a real accomplishment of salvation yeah. on the cross. Now, to get back to the main thread here, these, these people, these false prophets, are essentially denying that there will be judgment. So in this section here, um, he begins to go back to stories in the Old Testament to show how God works, his judgment of the wicked and his salvation of the righteous. So he goes back in, in this chapter to Genesis chapter 6. He talks about the, the angels that were cast into hell, right? And I believe this is speaking to um, you know, what the book of Enoch confirms, not a scriptural book, but extra biblical, but it confirms that these were rebel angels in Genesis 6 who intermarried with humans. Yeah. And we discussed that way back when. Um, he goes back to the flood and Noah and how God saved the world or saved Noah but destroyed the world. He goes back to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? So there's, there's really, I think, two things. He's, he's con- contrasting. He's contrasting the evil angels, Genesis 6, with the salvation of Noah and his family. And he's contrasting Sodom and Gomorrah with salvation of Lot and his family. Hmm. That's part of the reason why I think that those angels refer to Genesis chapter 6. Hmm. But with both of those, the point is in verse in verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9. He says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So that's, that's the lesson here, is that God knows how to save the righteous and condemn the unrighteous. Mm-hmm. That God's judgment is sure, his salvation is sure. And we can bank on that because we've seen him work throughout history. He gives some strong words in this chapter against false teachers. There's so many that we can go through them all, but some of my favorites, verse 12, he says, these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. Ooh, that's yeah. strong words, or, or verse 14, right? He says, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls, they have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Verse 17, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. They don't, they don't deliver what they promise, right? Waterless, waterless spring. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Hmm. So he's speaking in very, he's not speaking specifically to what they're teaching. So it, it leaves a lot of people wondering, what are these people all about? But it does it does speak to the nature of false prophets. They are self-centered, destructive, and that they're preying upon weak people. Look at verse 19. It says, They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So they're promising a lot, but they can't deliver anything mm-hmm. because they themselves haven't been delivered. Right. They're still enslaved in sin. So some really interesting pictures of false prophets best one though verse 22 what the true proverb says has happened to them the dog returns to its own vomit and the sow or pig after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire Hmm. so they 
turn away from something, but then they go right back to it. Yeah. And so Peter is warning us about these kinds of people. And I think the big takeaway we can we can meditate on is that the pattern of life of a teacher shows a lot about how much you should trust them. Hmm. I mean, I mean, compare this or contrast this to First Timothy three or Titus one. Right? Yeah. Qualifications of elders. They should be above reproach. They should live a certain kind of way of life. Um, these these kind of teachers see freedom as a way to engage in more sin, mm-hmm. because what they really love is not God. They love sin, mm. and so they teach falsely so that they can engage in more sin. Mm. So it reminds us of how easily wrong belief can turn into wrong practice. Yeah, yeah. and really, it's it's inevitable. Yeah, exactly. That happens. Yeah. So, chapter three, we'll just go through this briefly, but. Um, the last chapter here is guarding against false teaching <clears throat> and especially false teaching about the return of Christ. Right. So this is, this is a really interesting chapter. He says in verse three, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with their scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So he says, they're going to come people in later times that will, mock this that will scoff at the beliefs of of Christianity because Christ has not yet returned. Mm -hmm. And what they'll do is they'll point to the creation. They'll look at the world around them and they'll say, look, everything has always happened the exact same way. Mm. So this is the idea of uh, uniformitarianism, right? That things just kind of gradually progress at the same rate. There's no divine intervention possible. Um, This is a bedrock belief of evolution, right? Mm -hmm. And beliefs like that. Materialism. There never has been a God that's intervened in the world. Right. And so why should we be worried? Why should we be concerned? And so Peter points them to the things that they ignore. He says, for they deliberately overlooked this fact, verse 5, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Hmm. So he points to two things, right? Creation and the flood. Right. Two things that, um, not, you know, evolutionary naturalists, materialists deny and refuse to look at today, which is that creation had to have come from somewhere. (laughs) It did not come from nothing. And that there was a flood that wiped out the earth. And there's a lot of evidence of that flood around the world, but like, you know, sharks on top of mountains or whatever (laughs) we've heard about, you know? Um, But there's, there, there's incredible evidence that God intervenes and does things in this world. Yeah. And that he, creates and he brings judgment Mm -hmm. and he will do that again. He will uncreate and he will recreate. So he says, verse seven, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So God's waiting to destroy the world, not by water this time, but by fire. Yeah, He's going to cleanse the earth. He's going to remake the earth into something new. And so he goes on to say that God isn't delayed. God is patient. This is God's grace to us that he's taken so long, right? So Peter's looking to the future saying, it's going to be delayed longer than people will think, but that's because God wants people to be saved, Hmm. right? Don't overlook this fact, verse 8, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Key word in all that, I think, is you, God is, God is patient toward you, right? So he's not saying that, man, God doesn't want anyone to not be saved and he's doing the best he can, but people keep denying him. 
He's saying that God is going to fulfill his commitment to his people. That God's not willing that any person that belongs to him, that his, his elect, his chosen people, none of them are going to be lost. Right. So God is waiting, delaying judgment until the final number of his people are brought in to his mm-hmm. family. Yeah. Incredibly encouraging, right? So God is in control. He knows when that day will come, and he's doing it at the exact right time. Mm. And then we see the day of the Lord idea, the, the world being burned up in verse 10. We see a new heavens and new earth emerging in verses, um, uh, verse 13. So this reminds us of Isaiah. And, uh, and then we see the takeaway at the end, right, that we should grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. And he ends by saying, To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen. Well, amen to that. We'll see you next week for our next episode of Daily Gospel.